Section nine of Lynn McLean by Owen Wister. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four A Journey in Search of Christmas Part three. Mr. McLean entered Smith's palace, and, engaging a room with two beds in it, did a little delicate lying by means of the truth. It's a lost boy, a, a runaway, he told the clerk. He'll not be extra clean, I expect, if he does come. Maybe he'll give me the slip, and I'll have a job cut out tomorrow. I'll thank you to put my money in your safe. The clerk placed himself at the disposal of the Secret Service, and Lynn walked up and down, looking at the railroad photographs for some ten minutes, when Master Billy peered in from the street. "'Hello,' said Mr. McLean casually, and returned to a fine picture of Pike's Peak. Billy observed him for a space, and, receiving no further attention, came stepping along. "'I'm not a-goin' back to Laramie,' he stated warningly. "'I wouldn't,' said Lynn. "'It ain't half the town Denver is.' "'Well, good-night. Sorry you couldn't call sooner. I'm dead sleepy.' "'Oh!' Billy stood blank. I wish I'd shook that darned old show. Say, let me black your boots in the morning. Not sure my train don't go too early. I'm up, I'm up. I get around to all of em. Where do you sleep? Sleeping with the engine man now. Why can't you put that on me tonight? Going upstairs. This gentleman wouldn't let you go upstairs but the earnestly petitioned clerk consented, and Billy was the first to hasten into the room. He stood rapturous while Lynn buckled the belt around his scanty stomach, and ingeniously buttoned the suspenders outside the accoutrement to retard its immediate descent to earth. "'Did it ever kill a man?' asked Billy, touching the six-shooter. "'No, it ain't never had to do that but I expect maybe it stopped some killin' me. Oh, leave me wear it just a minute. Do you collect arrowheads? I think they're bully. There's the finest one you ever seen. He brought out the relic, tightly wrapped in paper, several pieces. I found it myself, camping with father. It was sticking in a crack right on top of a rock, but nobody'd seen it till I came along. Ain't it fine? Mr. McLean pronounced it a gem. Father and me found a lot, and they made Mother mad laying around, and she throwed em out. She takes stuff from Kelly's. Who's Kelly? He keeps the drug store at Laramie. Mother gets awful funny. That's how she was when I came home, for I told Mr. Perkins he lied, and I ran then and I knowed well enough she'd lick me when she got through her spell, and father can't stop her, and I—ah, I was sick of it. She's lamed me up twice beating me, and Perkins wanting me to say, God bless my mother, a-getting up and a-going to bed. He's a flub-dub. And so I cleared out, but I just as leave said for God to bless father, and you— I'll do it now, if you say it's any sense." And Mr. McLean sat down in a chair. "'Don't you do it now,' said he. "'You wouldn't like mother,' Billy continued. 
You can keep that. He came to Lin and placed the arrowhead in his hands, standing beside him. Do you like bird's eggs? I collect them. I got twenty-five kinds, sage hen and blue grouse and willow grouse and lots more kinds harder, but I couldn't bring all of them from Laramie. I brought the magpies, though. Do you care to see a magpie egg? Well, you stay tomorrow, and I'll show you that and some other things I got the engine man lets me keep there, for there's boys that would steal an egg. And I could take you where we could fire that pistol. Bet you don't know what that is. He brought out a small tin box, shaped like a thimble, in which were things that rattled. Mr. McLean gave it up. That's Kinney Kinnick Seed. You can have that, for I got some more with the engine man. Lynn received this second token also, and thanked the giver for it. His first feeling had been to prevent the boy's parting with his treasures, but something that came not from the polish of manners and experience made him know that he should take them. Billy talked away, laying bare his little soul. The street boy that was not quite come made place for the child that was not quite gone, and unimportant words and confidences dropped from him disjointed as he climbed to the knee of Mr. McLean and inadvertently took that cowpuncher for some sort of parent he had not hitherto met. It lasted but a short while, however, for he went to sleep in the middle of a sentence with his head upon Lynn's breast. The man held him perfectly still, because he had not the faintest notion that Billy would be impossible to disturb. At length he spoke to him, suggesting that bed might prove more comfortable, and, finding how it was, rose and undressed the boy and laid him between the sheets. The arms and legs seemed aware of the moves required of them, and stirred conveniently and directly the head was upon the pillow, the whole small frame burrowed down, without the opening of an eye or a change in the breathing. Lynn stood some time by the bedside, with his eyes on the long curling lashes and the curly hair. Then he glanced craftily at the door of the room, and at himself in the looking-glass. He stooped and kissed Billy on the forehead, and rising from that, gave himself a hangdog stare in the mirror, and soon in his own bed was sleeping the sound sleep of health. He was faintly roused by the church bells, and lay still, lingering with his sleep, his eyes closed and his thoughts unshaped. As he became slowly aware of the morning, the ringing and the light reached him, and he waked wholly, and, still lying quiet, considered the strange room filled with the bells and the sun of a winter's day. "'Where have I struck now?' he inquired, and as last night returned abruptly upon his mind, he raised himself on his arm. There sat Responsibility in a chair, washed clean and dressed, watching him. "'You're awful late,' said Responsibility but I weren't a-goin' without tellin' you good-bye." "'Go!' exclaimed Lynn. "'Go where? You surely ain't leavin' me to eat breakfast alone.' 
The cowpuncher made his voice very plaintive. Set responsibility free after all his trouble to catch him? This was more than he could do. I've got to go. If I'd thought you'd want for me to stay, why, you said you was a-goin' by the early train. But the dern things got away on me, said Lynn, smiling sweetly from the bed. If I hadn't a promise them, who? Sidney Ellis and Pete Good. Why, you know them. You grubbed with them. Shucks! We're a-goin' to have fun to-day. Oh! For it's Christmas, and we've bought some good cigars, and Pete says he'll learn me sure. O' course, I've smoked some, you know, but I'd just as leave stayed with you if I'd only knowed sooner. I wish you lived here. Did you smoke whole big cigars when you was beginning? Do you, um, like flapjacks and maple syrup? inquired the artful McLean. That's what I'm figuring on inside twenty minutes. Twenty minutes! If they'd wait! See here, Bill, they've quit expecting you, don't you think? I'd ought to waked, you see, but I slept and slept, and kept you from meeting your engagements, you see, for you couldn't go, of course. A man couldn't treat a man that way now, could he? Course he couldn't, said Billy, brightening. And they wouldn't wait, you see. They wouldn't fool away Christmas, that only comes once a year, kicking their heels and saying, Where's Billy? They'd say, Bill has sure made other arrangements, which he'll explain to us at his leisure, and they'd skip with the cigars. The advocate paused effectively, and from his bolster regarded Billy with a convincing eye. Mm, that's so, said Billy. And where would you be then, Bill? In the street, out of friends, out of Christmas, and left both ways, no tobacker and no flapjacks. Now, Bill, what do you say to us putting up a Christmas deal together, just you and me? I like that, said Billy. Is it all day? I was thinking of all day, said Lynn. I'll not make you do anything you'd rather not. Ah, they can smoke without me, said Billy, with sudden acrimony. I'll see him tomorrow. That's you, cried Mr. McLean. Now, Bill, you hustle down and tell them to keep a table for us. I'll get my clothes on and follow you. The boy went, and Mr. McLean procured hot water and dressed himself, tying his scarf with great care. Wished I'd a clean shirt, said he, but I don't look very bad. Shaven yesterday afternoon was a good move. He picked up the arrowhead and the kinnikinnick, and was particular to store them in his safest pocket. I ain't sure whether you're crazy or not, said he to the man in the looking-glass. I ain't never been sure. And he slammed the door and went downstairs. He found young Bill on guard over a table for four, with all the chairs tilted against it as warning to strangers. No one sat at any other table or came into the room, for it was late, and the place quite emptied of breakfasters, and the several entertained waiters had gathered behind Billy's important looking back. Lynn provided a thorough meal and Billy pronounced the flannel cakes superior to flapjacks, which were not upon the bill of fare. 
"'I'd like to see you often,' said he. "'I'll come and see you if you don't live too far.' "'Well, that's the trouble,' said the cowpuncher. "'I do. Awful far.' He stared out the window. "'Well, I might come some time. I wish you'd write me a letter. Can you write?' "'What's that? Can I write? Oh, oh, yes.' "'I can write, and I can read, too. I've been to school in Sydney, Nebraska, and Magaw, Kansas, and Salt Lake. That's the finest town, except Denver.' Billy fell into that cheerful strain of comment which unreplied to, yet goes on contented and self-sustaining, while Mr. McLean gave amiable signs of assent, but chiefly looked out the window and when the now interested waiter said respectfully that he desired to close the room, they went out to the office, where the money was got out of the safe and the bill paid. The streets were full of the bright sun, and seemingly at Denver's gates stood the mountains sparkling. An air crisp and pleasant wafted from their peaks. No smoke hung among the roofs, and the sky spread wide over the city without a stain. It was holiday up among the chimneys and tall buildings, and down among the quiet ground stories below as well. And presently, from their scattered pinnacles through the town, the bells broke out against the jocund silence of the morning. "'Don't you like music?' inquired Billy. "'Yes,' said Lynn. Ladies with their husbands and children were passing and meeting, orderly yet gayer than if it were only Sunday, and the salutations of Christmas came now and again to the cowpuncher's ears. But to-day, possessor of his own share in this, Lynn looked at every one with a sort of friendly challenge, and young Billy talked along beside him. "'Don't you think we could go in here?' Billy asked. A church door was open, and the rich organ sounded through to the pavement. They've good music here, and they keep it up without much talkin' between. I've been in lots of times. They went in and sat to hear the music. Better than the organ, it seemed to them, were the harmonious voices raised from somewhere outside, like unexpected visitants. And the pair sat in their back seat too deep in listening to the processional hymn to think of rising in decent imitation of those around them. The crystal melody of the refrain especially reached their understandings, and when for the fourth time, shout the glad tidings exultingly sing, pealed forth and ceased, both the delighted faces fell. "'Don't you wish there was more?' Billy whispered. "'Wish there was a hundred verses,' answered Lynn. But canticles and responses followed. With so little talking between them, they were held spellbound, seldom thinking to rise or kneel. Lynn's eyes roved over the church, dwelling upon the pillars in their evergreen, the flowers and leafy wreaths, the texts of white and gold. "'Peace, good will towards men,' he read. "'That's so.' peace and good-will. Yes, that's so. I expect they got that somewheres in the Bible. It's awful good, and you'd never think of it yourself." 
There was a touch on his arm, and a woman handed a book to him. "'This is the hymn we have now,' she whispered gently. And Lynn, blushing scarlet, took it passively without a word. He and Billy stood up and held the book together, dutifully reading the words. It came upon the midnight clear, that glorious song of old, from angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth! This tune was more beautiful than all, and Lynn lost himself in it, until he found Billy recalling him with a finger upon the words, the concluding ones, and the whole world sent back the song which now the angels sing. The music rose and descended to its lovely and simple end, and for a second time in Denver Lynn brushed a hand across his eyes. He turned his face from his neighbor, frowning crossly, and since the heart has reasons which reason does not know, he seemed to himself a fool, but when the service was over and he came out, he repeated again, Peace and good will. When I run on to the Bishop of Wyoming, I'll tell him if he'll preach on them words, I'll be there. Couldn't we shoot your pistol now? asked Billy. Sure, boy. Ain't you hungry, though? No. I wish we were away off up there, don't you? The mountains? They look pretty, so white, a heap better in houses. Why, we'll go there. There's trains to Golden. We'll shoot around among the foothills. To Golden they immediately went, and after a meal there wandered in the open country until the cartridges were gone, the sun was low, and Billy was walked off his young heels, a truth he learned complete in one horrid moment, and battled to conceal. Lame, he echoed angrily, I ain't. Shucks, said Lynn, after the next ten steps, you are, and both feet. Tell ya, there's stones here, and I'm just a-skippin' them. Lynn, briefly, took the boy in his arms and carried him to Golden. I'm played out myself, he said, sitting in the hotel and looking lugubriously at Billy on a bed, and I ain't fit to have charge of a hog. He came and put his hand on the boy's head. I'm not sick, said the cripple. I tell you I'm bully. You wait and see me eat dinner. But Lynn had hot water and cold water and salt, and was an hour upon his knees bathing the hot feet and then Billy could not eat dinner. There was a doctor in Golden, but in spite of his light prescription and most reasonable observations, Mr. McLean passed a foolish night of vigil, while Billy slept, quite well at first, and as the hours passed, better and better. In the morning he was entirely brisk, though stiff. I couldn't work quick to-day, he said, but I guess one day won't lose me my trade. How'd you mean? asked Lynn. Why, I've got regulars, you know. Sidney Ellis and Pete Good has theirs, and we don't cut each other. I've got Mr. Daniels and Mr. Fisher and lots, and if you lived in Denver I'd shine your boots every day for nothing. I wish you lived in Denver. 
Shine my boots? You'll never. And you don't black Daniels or Fisher or any of that outfit. Why, I'm doing first rate, said Billy, surprised at the swearing into which Mr. McLean now burst. And I ain't big enough to get to make money at any other job. I want to see that engine man, muttered Lynn. I don't like your smoking friend. Pete Good? Why, he's awful smart. Don't you think he's smart? Smart's nothing, observed Mr. McLean. Pete has learned me in Sydney a lot, pursued Billy engagingly. I'll bet he has, growled the cowpuncher, and again Billy was taken aback at his language. It was not so simple, this case. To the perturbed mind of Mr. McLean, it grew less simple during that day at Golden, while Billy recovered, and talked, and ate his innocent meals. The cowpuncher was far too wise to think for a single moment of restoring the runaway to his debauched and shiftless parents. Possessed of some imagination, he went through a scene in which he appeared at the Lusk threshold with Billy and forgiveness, and intruded upon a conjugal assault and battery. Shucks, said he, the kid would be off again inside a week, and I don't want him there anyway. Denver, upon the following day, saw the little boot-black again at his corner, with his trade not lost. But near him stood a tall, singular man, with hazel eyes and a sulky expression. And citizens during that week noticed, as a new sight in the streets, the tall man and the little boy walking together. Sometimes they would be in shops. The boy seemed as happy as possible, talking constantly, while the man seldom said a word, and his face was serious. Upon New Year's Eve, Governor Barker was overtaken by Mr. McLean, riding a horse up Hill Street, Cheyenne. Hello, said Barker, staring humorously through his glasses. Have a good drunk? Changed my mind, said Lynn, grinning. Proves I've got one. Struck Christmas all right, though. Well, who's your friend? inquired His Excellency. This is Mr. Billy Lusk. Him and me have agreed that towns ain't nice to live in. If Judge Henry's foreman and his wife won't board him at Sunk Creek, why, I'll fix it somehow. The cowpuncher and his responsibility rode on together toward the open plain. Suffering Moses, remarked His Excellency. End of chapter 4, part 3